Welcome to the fourth episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast. This week, we're turning our attention to El Salvador and the historic Jesuit massacre trial that is currently being heard before the Spanish National Criminal Court in Madrid. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to my colleague and dear friend, Almudena Bernabo, co-founder of the Guernica Group. Almudena needs little or no introduction and certainly doesn't need to be pushed to speak about a topic such as this. As I'm sure you'll understand, getting her to stop speaking is another matter entirely. The Jesuit case means a great deal to Almudena, and she has been involved in the case for more than a decade. Bringing it to trial has been a monumental effort in which many people have played a significant role. The principal defendant now standing trial in Madrid is a former colonel, Inocente Orlando Montano, who at the time of the events was vice president of public security. He was extradited from the United States of America to Spain on 29th of November 2017. He is standing trial for the assassination of six Jesuit priests and two women who they employed, which was carried out in the early hours of 16th of November 1989 in an attack that shocked the world. The events were so significant that they are said to have forced the end of the civil war in El Salvador and catalyzed the victim's quest for truth, justice and accountability. Due to the restrictions imposed as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and considering the international importance of the trial, the trial is being live streamed from the court in an effort to promote the need for justice to be publicly and transparently administered. The Guernica Centre, part of the Guernica Group, is providing access to the live streaming and providing daily trial briefs on its website, where you can find it at www.guernicacenter.org. Now let's speak to Almudena. So Almudena, there was a, an important trial that started in Spain just at the beginning of this month at the National Criminal Court. Why was that significant? Salvador went through uh, a civil war that lasted 10 years, hardcore years since a coup d'etat that was half civilians, half armed forces in 1979 took power. And the depth of the disagreements were such that a very powerful armed forces at the time supported directly by the United States and in the era of the Cold War and counterinsurgency wars and a newly created at the time guerrilla group that became quite powerful and significant in the region, kind of, you know, began this, this civil war that lasted 10 years. That war caused the lives of um, something like around 75,000 civilian lives, if probably more, uh, disappear people, torture, uh, abandoned by security forces, etc. Precipitated also like a massive displacement and a massive movement of refugees. The United States having an administration and the President Reagan, they were supporting these armed forces uh, all across Latin America, but specifically in Central America, financially and politically, making them even stronger as that decade uh, advanced, had also a very, um, and this is typical of the United States and we're seeing it today, a huge dissenting amount of politicians, scholars, academics, and activism complaining precisely about this foreign policy decisions and about these undertakings of the of Washington DC, so to speak, of the White House. And you had students 
uh, solidarity movements radicalized around the situation of the Central American refugees. We were talking about huge numbers. And humans that were coming here and having some sort of temporary status, they never got asylum granted. Because you see, asylum will mean that you will recognize that these people have been persecuted by their governments. In the United States, in this schizophrenia that is being kind of typical, in my opinion, in the last 30 years, will not grant these human beings such status. So they were in this limbo and, and they were taking care by what is called the Solidarity Movement, the Santuario Movement, which actually has been revived in the last few years uh, with Trump in, in, in an effort to show that same amount of solidarity. And it was really impressive. You've said now a couple of times, um, large numbers of people um, being displaced. I mean, what, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Maybe hundreds of thousands. Oh, wow. It's a tiny country with 4 million people. And at one point or another, a third of the country was out of the country. And today, this is just an anecdote, the, the biggest resource uh, for that government is still the revenue of what they call remesas, which is the money that the immigrant families in the United States send back home to their relatives. It's one of the biggest financial injection of the annual budgets of these countries. Many of them have been established and eventually legalized in the United States, but many of them remain undocumented because this is to, and a big, large amount of undocumented people in this country. When you hear in the news is still about undocumented are uh, Central Americans and Mexicans, almost exclusively. I will tell you in, in a percentage that will probably touch the 90%. And you said that uh, many of them left Salvador going through other countries on their way to, to the United States. But they also went through Guatemala, so they went from, from one conflict to another. That's right. And, and, and many die in Guatemala, actually, as a consequence. An important amount of American, perhaps educated middle classes and create this movement, as I said, the solidarity. We were talking about lawyers activists in the solidarity movement was helping the Central Americans from coming into the country to remaining in the country to having, we're talking about torture survivors, people that came in horrible conditions and finding in this, in particularly the church to get a job, to get social services if, if available. So when I came to the United States in 1999, uh, being from Spain, so we not only didn't have the, the laws, that we didn't have any uh, structure, service, anything organized. I mean, we had enough with overcoming a dictatorship and becoming a socialist welfare state that we had absolutely no idea how to deal with humans from sub-Sahara Africa, from Morocco, or from or from uh, former Yugoslavia. So in that context, I realized there was this thing called immigration. That really... But you know, bought my soul and grabbed my or hugged my soul, as they say, and never left. And when I came to San Francisco, that was very much my first job. And ninety percent of my boss's clients were Salvadoran and Guatemalans. Uh, a fair amount of Nicaraguans as well, as all these countries went through similar histories with few years in between, but mostly Salvadorans. And these were people um, facing potential uh, deportation. Yes. And at the same time, um, what will happen is that finally, with a lot of civil society 
pressure. And I would like to acknowledge here the chair of the Guernica Center for International Justice, Caroline Patty Bloom. She and, and a number of wonderful lawyers, Mark Vanderhout and others in San Francisco, engaged in, in a lawsuit brought on behalf of these particular immigrants and their situation. And what happened is that the lawsuit evolved in facilitating an amnesty, a program called the Nicaraguan and Central American Relief Act. The tail end of that amnesty was happening when I moved to San Francisco. So I was able to jump in on that. And what that program was, and it's spectacular, if you were Salvadoran or Guatemalan and you had come to the United States at a particular date, there was a cutoff date, let's say November 16, 1990 or something like that, then you will be qualified to apply for this amnesty, which meant, number one, there are a lot of human beings just because they came three days later or a month later were absolutely out of it. But that aside, then you will go through a process of telling your story. That's where I became, I think, very familiar with the story of the war, because obviously the story of our clients were some of them, obviously the simple, I mean, the simple of you with all the respect, but the simple story of I'm afraid my town was attacked, I was displaced. From that story too, I was tortured for two weeks and raped and I had to live in these conditions. I mean, so you had all those stories and, and an understanding of the conflict through the testimonials of the human beings who they suffered. But anyway, and then the second thing, which I find extremely um, Machiavellic, is that then... To qualify for such amnesty, you will have an interview with an immigration at the time and nationality. There was the INS, the service, an immigration officer, Toby. And then you will have to re reject or, uh, how do you say, you will have to renounce to your right to receive asylum in order to get legal residency. So they made this amnesty with a still the political implication that we will never acknowledge that you were persecuted by your country, uh, but that nonetheless you went through some humanitarian major trauma. So I had so many issues with that. What was the logic of that? The logic of that is never acknowledge that the United States government, by funding the armed forces and the military governments of Central America, did anything wrong. Because and then that will make the United States an accomplice to the killings and the repression that these military governments carried on. Extraordinary. I know. And then soon after, I understood that the unhappiness and the... What I want to say, you know, that, that kind of thirst, if I may, from the Salvadoran community. Salvadorans are actually a very resilient society, tough little country that has gone through a lot, but also produces quite extraordinary strong people. One of the things that they, that they did and supported in 1980, of all the number of emblematic uh, crimes that took place in El Salvador. One of them was the assassination in November 1980 of four religious women from the United States. It was really a devotion. It was really a deep uh, political and sophisticated understanding of the situation. And they went down to try to help the people of El Salvador. And, and these women were both, with four of them upon arrival in, in San Salvador, kidnapped um, brutally and raped and their bodies buried by the national police, which is one of the security forces. That really 
shocked the United States. And then the brother of one of the sisters, uh, Bill Ford, was a lawyer. He went to El Salvador and tried for years to investigate what happened to his sister and then decided to reach out to colleagues in in the United States, lawyers who from the, the Lawyers Committee for uh, Civil Rights and from the Center for uh, Constitutional Rights in New York, a number of lawyers that following the very American and I think absolutely admirable tradition of social justice had used um, this obscure couple of laws, specifically the Alien Torte Statue passed in 1789 in the American First Congress, to bring uh, civil suits for compensation, yes, but at the same time uh, to bring to the court's attention massive human rights violations committed to non-Americans for the most part, to aliens, by non-Americans, and acts that took place somewhere else. So, I mean, the essence of what we call universal jurisdiction, if you wish, in the essence of extraterritorial jurisdiction and the state responsibility when it comes to international crimes. They had successfully used it against torture uh, in the 1970s, and it was kind of a revival, if you wish, of this law when in 1992, President Bush, the father, um, decided to pass what is called the Torture Victims Protection Act. It was a second act, same nature, specifically aiming to prosecute torture and extrajudicial killing and provided standing for both foreigners and U.S. citizens. So Bill 4 filed suit against when he discovered that amongst this bunch of refugees, we had armed forces as high as former ministers of defense and generals of the army who came to the United States and decided to make the United States upon retirement their home. Of course, their situation, as you can imagine, Toby, was not as precarious as my clients. <laughs> Initially, they were having homes and boats and lives in Palm Springs. So Bill Four uh, was able to find these two of the gentlemen, General Guillermo Garcia and Eugenio Vides Casanova, both uh, former ministers of defense in different periods, and filed suit against them for the assassination of his sister. The case was um, a mind-blowing effort. Unfortunately, the case was lost. Uh, these cases um, are a bench, uh, it's, a, it's a bench case, it's a jury trial, and the case was lost on mostly um, liability. You know, the, 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 the theory that we are also acquitted now of command responsibility was so skinny and so underdeveloped in this country that I think that the jury didn't grasp, didn't see um, how to make these generals responsible. And a group of lawyers in San Francisco, uh, they decided to file a second case against the same two generals um, but this time, and I think that this was crucial, this time on behalf of three Salvadoran survivors of torture living in the United States. Well, I think it's crucial not because Ita Ford's death was not uh, an important one, but because I think that having the survivors alive uh, testifying in court made a huge difference for all involved, for the jury for the judge naturally, and, and I think even for the potential impact, which is 
really a priority of mine. And and it was of the team that I know it well, they initiated this case, but the potential impact that this case could have in El Salvador. That must have been one of the, the most important considerations because it was, you know, quite often it's it's not necessarily whether it's successful or not. It's that you're, you're actually uh, taking a position, you're advancing these cases on behalf of victims and the impact that it has on the victim community and ordinary civilians in, in the home country is, is huge. The second case against the generals, it was successfully won and they got a huge uh, sentence for both uh, punitive damages and compensatory damages, which is the way it's called in the United States, and acknowledge every single minute of the torture suffered by the three plaintiffs, etc., even that case was received with a lot of skepticism in El Salvador. But a second case and a third case took place. These cases were all brought by the Center for Justice and Accountability and a group of lawyers um, that we were there, Matt Eisenbrandt, Patty Bloom that I mentioned. And with the help, which I think it's very important, we will have never been able to do it, of the U.S. pro bono counsel from different law firms. Despite of being what? at the time, 15 years, maybe 10 years after the official um, end of the war, everything was raw and open. Everything was still bleeding and sensitive, so to speak. So it was a great teaching for me to go down there, to listen to colleagues, to find evidence. And two cases follow. One that really, I think, Toby uh, made the Salvadorans understand that when all justice efforts have been completely shattered in your home country was the case for the assassination of Archbishop Romero. The Archbishop of El Salvador in a profoundly Catholic country and became really outspoken about what the armed forces with the acquiescence of the United States and, you know, all of it were doing to the people of El Salvador. He understood that what we're doing is killing our people, you know, that this is not a war, that this is a dirty war, that this is a counterinsurgency war, that this is about repressing, not about warfare. Just for those listening, I think it's it's very clear that when you say that's that's you at your happiest, I think I think I can I can safely say that's true. I mean, working in the field with victims doing that kind of work is what you consider to be real work. Um and I think when you say that you don't listen to advice from your colleagues about going to places like that where they're dangerous, <laughs> also confirm that's true, um, as is evidenced by you going to Honduras and Venezuela when you're told not to. Um, and for the benefit of uh, um, those listening, for those that don't know Almadena quite as well as I do, um, when when she refers to Gringo Land, she's actually referring to the United States. <laughs> Just to make those points clear. Everybody had Monsignor Romero in their hearts in El Salvador. It really became an icon and a, and a figure that represented the most powerful meaning or, or the most powerful message, which is if we can kill Monsignor Romero, we can kill you all. You know, that was the message of the armed forces. And it, as such, it became a symbol of resistance, but also a symbol of unity and a common element to all Salvadorans. And I think that that case really 
open up hearts and trust, I would say, towards the work of these cases and the ability of these cases to tell uh, the story of the Salvadoran people suffering, and particularly the story of the impunity that was established by the same assassins they had power and were killing people and how they have with an amnesty you know, closing a conflict of 10 years and, and a lot of suffering at the cost of the victims. Salvadoran victims were excluded of the process of healing and closing a 10-year conflict. So that case, as I said, was the precursor of the work that came later. There was one case that kind of screaming <laughs> to me, which is the case in 1989 of the Jesuits, uh, six priests, Jesuits at a university, at the Jesuit University in San Salvador called UCA, were horribly killed. And it really is historic. The historians now, um, they have kind of wrapped the conflict into a beginning that could be marked by the assassination of Archbishop Romero in 1980 and by and a closing or, a, or an end of the war precipitated by the killing of the Jesuits in 1989. And lucky me, I felt that I had the responsibility of at least try to uh, bring this, uh, this case to court. Latin America wasn't the only place where we were seeing such uh, lawlessness and such crimes being committed by regimes of this kind. I mean, you had it also across Africa. Why did France or Belgium not become those centres of justice and Spain did? I think that naturally Spain has true love and, and, and admiration and attraction to Latin America. But what you had in Spain was... Uh, really, a person that we both know, and you know, a friend, and uh, Carlos Castresana, a prosecutor, curious, erudicious with the law that he handled on a daily basis. These are procedural rules. This is not rocket science, if you wish, but you have to be paying attention. And of course, people that were sensible and university students, where most of these um, struggles were taking place in Latin America. So naturally and politically committed around the defense of the of the people of these countries. And I think Carlos Castrosana was the very first one as a prosecutor who saw this tiny provision and who was paying attention, a wonderful uh, lawyer called Joan Garces in Madrid, who had been all his life waiting to find something um, to bring uh, be, before the Spanish court's responsibility uh, for the crimes committed in Chile during the, the dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet. We're talking about 1996, 1997. So he was paying attention. And when he saw the uh, prosecutor, Carlos Castresana, had done that work and the two of them concurred somehow, the next thing you have was an investigating judge, Baltasar Garzón, brave and eager, and I think with the same ideas and the same principles to really push this forward from his from his position and the power that all things need to be said that an investigating judge has, which is even larger, obviously, than a prosecutor in, in our system in Spain. Anyway, you have all of these, and then you have all these cases that everybody knows about. And I'm watching from San Francisco, by the way, and I'm always watching, and I'm always interested, and I found a way to get in touch with the lawyers in Spain. Lucky me that I came across Manuel Oye. 
is probably the most experienced person around universal jurisdiction in Spain. The Jesuits case became um, uh, a case that had been for 20-some years uh, active in El Salvador in an effort to seek justice that they, the Jesuits themselves and with them the relatives of those assassinated had never, ever, ever put down, never, ever rested. They were constantly trying every single possibility inside the country, whether it was an appeal, whether it was an attempt to file a complaint, demand for truth. I mean, they have done a number of things and they were always shattered. They were always rejected. They were somehow tricked into a stupid resolution of an appeal. Then you had all the experience in, I think, good work done um, in the United States, alien tort statue cases uh, by this team of lawyers that I was privileged enough to belong. They had to do with investigating, going back to the roots of the conflict, analyzing the situation in El Salvador, you know, preparing and creating in the business of the world expert witnesses and people with a huge amount of of handling of, of these cases. And then you had a Spain with a universal jurisdiction universe of cases uh, in danger, as we, as you normally well told me, that they were closing and attempting against the universal jurisdiction provisions in different countries for being politically inconvenient, to say the least. And then the Jesuits case that had this other component, very special. Five of the six Jesuits were Spanish-born. They were citizens of Spain that in the 1950s and 60s, uh, they, obviously all of them Jesuits, priests, the religious order had sent them to as missionaries, but also academics and the way they order their works to, uh, to Central America in particular. So I thought that there was a win-win, and that's what I call it an obligation. I mean, how could I sleep <laughs> if I didn't try to put the two together? And then I had the absolutely amazing, you know, support of Benjamin Cuellar at the time, the director of the Human Rights Institute at UCA University, who conspired with me, who really is the person that helped me to overcome all resistances in, in El Salvador to file this case. We filed in 2008, in November 2008, after uh, the family of one of the Jesuits assassinated, Ignacio Martín Baró, agreed uh, to join the prosecution in the Spanish Pro-Human Rights Association through what is called in Spain the popular, um, the popular prosecution. It's a very unique thing in the Spanish legislation. Uh, agreed. I mean, we 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 rely on that platform and that orga wonderful organization to really push the case forward, and that's how the case began. I have to comment on what you've said about, about why you did it. I mean, I appreciate that there are certain people that have said you're obligated to do it for, for various reasons and that you have a great support team. But, I mean, look, I think for those of us that know you, know that you would have done it regardless of what anyone ever told you. <laughs> the reality is that you don't choose the easy path. I mean, quite often you choose the, the most difficult path and the path that makes your life and the life of everyone around you um chaotic <laughs> i don't say that in in a, in a negative or a derogatory way at all i mean i think that's that's what makes you what you are that you do these things not because you feel 
obligated by what someone has said to you, but you feel obligated because it's the right thing to do. And I think that that's admirable. My theory about these things is how can we not do them? I mean, <laughs> how you can ignore what you have here? Spain is a profoundly Catholic country. Uh, institutional church and all, and obviously 40 years of dictatorship with the church aligned with the dictator, the dominated kind of side by side. And then I know that the Jesuits, per se, as an order, even though they have very conservative factions in Spain generally, has been considered a more, progre a more progressive, particularly those who went to Latin America. They have done extraordinary work with victims and and. Um, real poverty and, and fighting inequality, et cetera, and, and things that are very much still of a problem in, in some of these countries. But I remember as the threat, and it has materialized, and we have evidence now, as the threat came, the, this universal jurisdiction for all of us, we believe is fundamental. Um, as the threat came that they were going to uh, first undermine it, I mean, reform it in a way that it was going to disappear. The first attempt, uh, or the rumor, I should say, was, and you remember this because France and Belgium and other countries went through the same path, was to allow uh, the assertion of jurisdiction only when the Spanish victims or when the victims of the nationality in um Uh, they had, you know, were part of the crime or were the consequence of the crime. I thought that that was despicable to begin with. I think the making uh, pain and crime and criminality about, <laughs> about, you know, belonging to one country or another is the opposite right there of the idea of universal jurisdiction. But okay, we have to cope with it. We have to adapt. So for me, the strength of this case was And there were five Spaniards, but also, frankly, is that nobody in Spain, and that's maybe more a psychological, will entirely attack a case that touches the Catholic Church. <laughs> and I think that that was also a political calculation. I mean, it is important to bring cases. I don't think I'm a silly person that thinks that all crimes, all the times, everywhere, anywhere should be you know, persecuted. I'm very aware of how as much as I believe in universal jurisdiction, if there are practical challenges that we practitioners need to try to overcome for prosecutors, for judges, for anybody, even those better intended. I did believe that this case was um, an example of how many of those challenges can be overcome. The case had it all, had it all in my calculations. Eventually, you know, the reform in 2014 of the universal jurisdiction provision in Spain was so deplorable, so absolutely horrible, that the case almost crashed. Uh, fortunately, you know, procedural and, and the type of crime that was alleged, etc., allowed the case to survive. So why, and going now, since we are in the case, so the case is really the result of many cases, of many years of work on behalf of the lawyers involved and the actors. One of the things or the twist that this case had is that uh, the colonel who is sitting in the bench in, uh, in, this, in the defendant's chair, I should say, in Spain, happened to live in, recently at that time, had moved to Massachusetts, to a little town outside of Boston. And he happened to be picking up the phone that day that I gave him a call to confirm his address. <laughs> And he answered the phone. 
he answered the phone and I was nervous like a wreck. And then I said, in one of those historic moments, I say, uh, may I speak to Coronel Inocente Montano? And he answered, speaking. So I thought that that was one of the most important contributions I was going to make to the legal. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, what happened after that is that we were able, through U.S. authorities within itself, is a, is a, is a challenge in the sense that you cannot tell a Homeland Security officer or a Department of Justice attorney what to do. They will do whatever they consider they will do. But they were, I think, extraordinarily efficient and this is what I mean about the little miracles. This guy happened to be outside of El Salvador, where are the chances? In, in the United States, I mean, he wasn't hiding, was he? I mean, he wasn't living under an assumed name. Exactly. Not only that, like he had actually, which made things a little easier, he had lied under his, his real identity. He had, however, misrepresented his military past. Uh, on an application to gain what is called a, like a temporary status. It's like one of these programs that the U.S. federal government still has for still kind of a, a sequel of what I was talking initially about these communities that are undocumented. These uh, TPS is called the Temporary Protective Status. It's not a solution to your problems, meaning you cannot travel and you don't have a permanent um, immigration status in the country, but at least you are not deportable and you can legally work. Two very important things when you're thinking about everyday life for many human beings in this country and many who do not have that yet, if I may um, point that and make that very clear, which is something that we all suffer. Um, but anyway, he misrepresented his military past seven times, I'm going to say, or a number of times, lying about he was being ever a member of the armed forces. Isn't that, sick? Isn't that extraordinary? And that's where the basis for the immigration fraud case brought by the U.S. authorities. That was the basis for them to initially go after him, very much in the same way um, like, like they did a number of Bosnian and Serbs that were in the United States. When I was in Bosnia, Working with the prosecutor's office, we had worked with a couple of individuals involved with the US. And that's how they initially got people through lying on their immigration, that they'd never been part of the armed forces. And that's what happens. So so he, he was prosecuted first for, for immigration fraud, and then the extradition came after that. Is that right? That's right. He was in jail for a couple of years. And then from there, as I said, we needed to work on having an extradition request adequate to the U.S. legal system. And that was a challenge in itself. And it was successful and the Department of State granted it. Then it becomes a completely jurisdictional process. There's a political decision that is followed by a whole contested adversarial trial on the extradition itself. So the Coronel Montano had the opportunity, and he did, with represented by counsel, to contest and, and, and fight the extradition. And that also made even more significant the decision of, of Judge Swank when she ruled in favor of the extradition, that it was evidence presented, expert witness testimony, opportunities for direct and cross-examination, and a full defense. And even though she found that he would be responsible as a commander for these uh, terrorist assassinations. Did that surprise you that it was almost like a, a trial of the issues in the extradition process? It surprised me for legal and political reasons. If you, For legal reasons, because the continental system 
in the U.S. system are so different. And Spain has expedited the process for extradition under the Eurojust situation and the Euro order of extradition so much that right now they're very succinct because it's very little really that is needed other than double criminality, you know, this and that. When it comes to the bilateral agreement of extradition or the um, with Spain, the United States has a bilateral agreement, naturally, but also has, you know, the, the agreement with the European Union. So you had to be watching that too and analyzing both extraditions. And when we presented our brief uh, to Judge Velasco for him to issue the request for the extradition, we were trying to understand, you know, we were trying to endorse what I want to say, you know, how the equivalences, if you wish, and of the two systems within the obligations under the treaties. And it is difficult. It's, there are, I mean, one of my obsessions with Guernica, as you know, and us have that obsession, is how to bring the legal cultures closer together. I will say, because I was educated in one and trained in another or vice versa, and I will say that they have more in common <laughs> than we believe, but also a lot to give each other. The United States has absolutely, absolutely no interest in universal jurisdiction. Quite the opposite has engaged dramatically since the Rome Statute was um, approved in the in 1998 and the International Criminal Court started walking in 2000 to really boycott it. They, un, as you know, they unsign and walk away from the court. And since then, particularly since the Iraq war and in, in, in all those, you know, years, have been actively attacking governments, countries, courts, organizations. They have, I mean, most recently, uh, President Trump on an executive order did the same, Toby against the ICC. I mean, they don't want to deal with anything they may put, use officials, um, potentially any long-arm jurisdiction or any universal jurisdiction of any kind that will go after use officials. The United States is the leading country in the world at dictating how things should be done in terms of law and policy as long as it doesn't affect them. It's do as we say, not as we do. I mean, that's the regrettable position. But I think looking at the different systems, one of the things for me which is extraordinary is the level of or the difference between extradition proceedings as we would understand them in the United Kingdom, where it is effectively a trial. I mean, it's, it's, it's a trial of the challenges to extradition rather than trial of the, the the substantive criminal charge but but there is very much this adversarial process that challenges whether a person should be extradited or not whereas in continental europe um, it is much more of an administrative process i think the united states is i wouldn't say it is as adversarial as the uk extradition proceedings, but it is obviously a lot more adversarial than continental Europe. That's right. Initially, we thought there's no way under the sun that a judge of the United States extradites 
to a third country, one thing will be to El Salvador to face the Salvadoran justice, but another thing is to send it to Spain. And also about a war that in the books of the United States government was still a counterinsurgency, legitimate war against the threat of communism in the Cold War. And that rhetoric, which I particularly dislike, was a belief, um, and it is a belief, and they do believe that that's what they were doing. They were not killing human beings, and they were not supporting torture. They think that they were uh, requesting sufficient guarantees before supporting these uh, coup d'etats and these military governments. But that is an institutional lie that we know that you know this country is capable of. You weren't expecting the, the court to rule in your favor? I was in Spain when the extradition I got this phone call, and the phone call just told me a time and a number. And I remember saying, this is a flight number. Let's check it out. So someone called uh, Barajas, the Madrid airport, to check if it was a flight number. And it, and it was. It was a Delta flight. Until I saw him on a wheelchair leaving Barajas, I couldn't believe my eyes. He left America walking and uh, arrived in Madrid in a wheelchair. <laughs> Don't they do all do that, the same thing? Wasn't that what Pinochet did in reverse? Pinochet left London uh, in wheelchair and uh, arrived in Chile jumping, <laughs> walking and jumping. <laughs> so we're, we're now at the stage where, where the trial has officially opened. So, I mean, how did that feel when the trial officially opened? You know, I will tell you that it, that it was a little bit disappointing that I will not be physically present in Madrid in the high court after all these years. I think that my the best contribution I can do to these cases is already done, which was this this, this prior twelve years and the evidence that was presented during the investigation phase, little by little by little, and the trust of the witnesses. But yeah, I'm happy, and I'm actually satisfied that it's gonna be that is going to be done and there's going to be some closure. And I'm actually happy that this case comes because so much time has passed, probably uh, 12 years, and this case also comes uh, at a time where there's a tiny bit of openness in El Salvador, as we saw perhaps in Guatemala. We've seen a little bit of that in El Salvador as a couple of very brave judges are investigating um, some of these cases of 20, 30 years ago, uh, a much needed, believe it or not, in the despite of what anybody believes out there, sorry to be my mantra, but much more directly related to the problems of the present than what people think. So doing these cases, yes, it matters for societies and become precursors of change that otherwise you do not see. So I do believe that there is some of this is necessary to do in El Salvador for that beautiful little country to have options for the future. And let's not forget that Montano is only one defendant. They are another 14, and they're all in El Salvador as we speak. So there's plenty of work. <laughs> one at a time. Exactly. Not rushed. We're waiting 30 years for one. Yeah. We're going to get the truth. We're going to get some evidence. And I, I want to also say that the effort done in Spain will have never, ever, 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 not even a minute of that effort make any sense or would be possible without the Salvadoran colleagues. And I think that that's 
What is unique is that now everything that happens in Spain will return to El Salvador where it belongs. And we'll see what happens. The next is way to be seen, but I'm sure there will be some action. We'll come back and we'll we'll talk about this again in a, in a later podcast when when the trials trials over because I think it's it's going to be significant as to what happens regardless of what the verdict is. But I think, look, I mean, you've you've spoken about how so much has changed in your life since the beginning of this case, um, and I think everyone has or all of us have a case that has shaped our lives and shaped our careers and the you know the, the Jesuit massacre trial I think is the one that has shaped you and shaped your life um and you know I think for 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 all of us at Guernica um we're we're very proud to be part of that I mean it's a it's it's a very very important process um that we're going through and again I mean I, I say regardless of what the outcome is what has been achieved by just getting this individual in front of a court in spain is significant enough i mean obviously the evidence will 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 show whether he should be convicted or not and what kind of sentence he should get i mean i think we also have to be realistic that at his age his obviously the sentence he gets is is not going to be um, the sentence that, that the victims demand but I think the fact that he's standing trial there, that the victims have a voice, um, and that you have not stopped as long as, uh, along with a number of other people, have not stopped and have been instrumental in getting this to trial, is is an incredible achievement in itself. It's been a journey. What can I say? And I'm, I'm but I'm also very proud. You know, I was very proud um, of my colleagues, and and I was grateful. Um, to the to the guys at the Center for Justice and Accountability, despite some skepticism initially, to to let me bring this case, but I couldn't be happier. It's incredible what has been put in place by by the Spanish authorities to ensure that it is seen by the victims and and seen by the world. Um, and I think that that is again testament to the importance of the trial that it is being broadcast and live streamed in that way, which is obviously not. Uh, not something which would ordinarily happen for for a trial. Exactly. Um, and so I think that's 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 important. And so look, I think we'll have to see what happens um, in July. Um, I think obviously we are all um, convinced that the the strength of the evidence is there that that uh, this this individual Montana will be convicted and sentenced. I mean, it's a it's a strong case. It's it's a just case. Um, and it's a case that needs to be heard. That's right. Yeah. And I'm thrilled there is in, in a court of law that is in, in Spain where with all our problems, due process is strong and where jail conditions are humane, uh, unlike many in the U.S. where he has been obviously in jail, but under under, you know, he looks healthy, and I'm sure that he had any health problems. He was attended, so yeah, I couldn't expect. And this is what the families want. And if we, if this is gonna happen now, I hope that obviously my wildest dream is that he will, um, that the truth will come. Everybody knows what happened and who did it, so it's not necessarily that we know, but the the official, uh, or formal. Um, establishment. I don't know if this is the proper word, but the 
creating the official record of what happened and who did it beyond just a truth commission, but in a court of law, in a panel of three justices with important amount of experience on these issues, uh, given the composition of, of the tribunal, um, it's, it's what we believe in, isn't it? I mean, it's not just that you say what I say, is that this is the court that's going to analyze, uh, understand the evidence, uh, ponderate the evidence, and make a, a neutral decision. And I hope is the right one. And it will be massively important for the people of El Salvador, I think. I think you're right. Thank you. That was Almadena Bernabel talking about the Jesuit massacre trial. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. This is a subject that we at Guernica are very passionate about. We hope that you can walk away from this with a better understanding of the Jesuit massacre trial and the importance that it is playing for the pursuit of truth, justice and accountability. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media with any comments you may have. You can find our website at www.guernica37.com where you can find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can also find us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. Next week, we'll be bringing a different approach to accountability. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.